and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad, and the weird of movies, either starring, about, or by pop stars. There's no other podcast that covers such a broad range of music and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I write for the Geek Show and Byline Times, and I'm also a short filmmaker. I'm joined this week by... Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Pizak. Uh I am found on Letterboxd at Scrambled Face. Uh, I'm a former newspaper writer and uh, longtime movie fan and diehard Weird Al maniac. Yes, Weird Al. Uh, we've been talking about this one for quite a while, but the release of Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic, not by your pick. It's... It's joining a trend with Blonde, isn't it, for things that aren't quite biopics. And that's, I think, the only connection I can make between Weird Al Yankovic and Marilyn Monroe. But that's come out on, which which channel is it again? I forget. The, the Roku, it's the Roku channel. Roku, so, yes. Yeah. Uh, starring Daniel Radcliffe, which is extremely wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cast list in general is pretty pretty extensive. You know, just looking over all the bit parts and folks playing his bandmates and whatnot, it's uh, yeah, it's a pretty impressive. I am a bit of a newcomer to Weird Al. I think I largely sort of I'd always been aware of him, but I, I only started really sort of thinking about him uh, because I'm a great admirer of Nathan Rabin, the former. Onion AV club writer who now has uh, his own site, Nathan Rabin's Happy Place, and is also the authorised biographer of Weird Al. Yeah, I, um, I I haven't really read any of his writing about him, but I do know Nathan Rabin, and uh, you know I'm familiar with his book about uh, beleaguered fandoms. Uh, he wrote a book a few years ago that was comparing the experience of being a fish fan and a insane clown posse fan and why uh, people just look down on those fandoms without really knowing too much about them. Um, so I think, yeah, Weird Al uh, it might kind of loosely fit in there. He definitely has a little more, at least in the States, a little more widespread, uh, um, you know, uh, acceptance, but he is mm. still, you know, uh, kind of a niche guy. And if you're getting deeply into it. Yes. Uh, how, how would you pitch Weird Al to a British audience who are maybe slightly unfamiliar with the setup here. He, uh, so Al, you know, he's, uh, he's best known for his parodies of popular songs, um, you know, and so if you were to pick up any random Weird Al Yankovic album, uh, I would say you'd get a really uh, interesting uh, uh, kind of a, a, a litmus test of what was going on in the culture at that time. So not just the songs he's parodying or the artists he's talking about, but kind of the general cultural trends. And, um, you know, throughout his career, he's really uh, made an effort to, to, uh, to reflect that stuff. And, you know, he's, uh, he's genuinely engaged in the pop culture. So uh, he does it all from a place of, uh, kind of uh, loving uh, parody. Uh, he never parodies anything he doesn't like. Um, so if you want someone who's gonna, you know, sort of make fun of the current trends without being mean about them, mm. uh, Elder Guy. Yes, and he's been doing this for a tremendously long time, hasn't he? Was it like late seventies, early eighties when he started off? 
Yeah, yeah, around that time. I think his first album came out in 82 or 3. Mm, right. So that's, I mean, that that's a tremendous amount of time to be playing the accordion and singing about lunch meats. It's a tremendous amount of time to be doing anything, <laughs> but it's a particularly incredible amount of time to be doing that. Sure. So UHF is written by Al and uh, co-written and directed by his manager, Jay Levy, who I believe are also behind Weird, the not-by-a-pick that we uh, mentioned earlier on. And this came... It came like a fair distance into his career, didn't it? I mean, there was there was clearly enough proof that he wasn't going to go away overnight. Yeah, so like late 80s uh, period for, for him, uh, you know, just in terms of his career, it was between kind of two of the, his bigger hits from that era. Um, you know, his previous album had the Michael Jackson parody uh, of Bad called Fat. Um, and then the, the subsequent album he did, uh, had the Smells Like Nirvana parody of, of uh, Smells Like Team Spirit. Um, but so UHF came right in the middle of there. And you would think that like that height of fame really would have boosted it with audiences. But um, that really didn't happen for him. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very strange that this did not take off. And I was trying to... Like, I can understand why it didn't take off in Britain, because he was sort of not very famous in Britain at that time. And I have some theories that we'll get into as to why that might be. But in America, it, it is quite odd. I mean, I read Roger Ebert's review of this film, and Ebert is a pretty easygoing guy, you know, for someone with a reputation as being one of the pinnacles of film criticism. He's perfectly capable of approaching a popcorn movie on its own terms and having a perfectly good time with it. And he despised this film. Like, it's genuinely extraordinary to read. It is like someone like setting about a, a koala with a baseball bat. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, Weird Al, you know, I think that in general people have come around to him, but I think back then he really was kind of looked at as, you know, just this novelty guy. You know, he was kind of riding on the coattails of popular songs. He, you know, didn't have any original thoughts or, you know, he and everything boiled down to food or TV references for him. You know, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of common complaints, but like, um, you know, it that really I think comes from a place of misunderstanding because you know, there's a lot there's a lot more to Weird Al than than what people know of of his hits. Um, but I think that that's that kind of stigma that that um, I guess misconception of of who he is as a as a performer kind of bled into that. So people, it's easy to dismiss him as you know just some goofy guy who sings about lasagna and you know lunch meat and stuff like that. Well, UHF is is kind of like a full exploration of that kind of trash culture, couch potato side of Al. So I guess I can understand on that level why people who had that caricature of him would just sort of look at this and saying, you're unbelievable, he's trying to get a whole movie out of this. But the film itself, I will say, while I was not completely won over by the film, I will say 
UHF is a hell of a lot weirder than you would expect from like a tie-in movie for a guy who makes novelty hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sense of humor, you know, because I, I think again, like his approach to uh, the parody is is always been well. I would back that up and say his first album, he uh, was doing the arrangements with his band in accordion. So you get uh, kind of strange covers that are a little more lo-fi. But by his second album, uh, which is where Eat It, which was with his his first big hit, a parody of Beat It by Michael Jackson. Um, when that came out, uh, he switched to really trying to emulate the original arrangements and production quality and style of the original songs and has done so since then. Um, but I think in terms of UHF, I think that's where he was applying that. So his parodies of, uh, of television, of film, um, it really makes an effort to try to actually look and feel like the things he's parodying rather than just being a, a, you know, a cheap riff and, you know, what we saw in parody films later on. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think you see that in UHF when about half an hour in, which I think is a strange amount of time to pass before your first song parody. Maybe the film would have been more successful if they'd just, you know, done the less artistic thing and shoehorned one or two in in the first half hour. But hey, about half an hour in, you get the first song parody and it's this astonishingly elaborate parody of Money for Nothing by Dire Straits and its video, which is a, a ridiculous video even before Weird Al's got hold of it. Um, but during my research, I learned that Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits agreed to have Al parody his song on the condition that he played guitar on it. He wanted to be the guy who played guitar on a Weird Al Yankovic parody. Yep. Yeah, and you know, uh, and that's pretty rare. Um, most of the time, you know, it, it, the folks just sign off, or um, you know, their managers do. Sometimes, and I was running into some issues where there was some miscommunication there. Um, but yeah, no, that yeah, absolutely, that money for nothing, Beverly Hillbillies um, version. Yeah, they've got you've, you've got Mark Knopfler on there, so it's there's never going to be a question of you know, whether he was poking fun at the band, you know, again, only paradise parody songs that he likes. And not just the song, but the, the video is recreated by none other than David Silverman, who's handling the animation for this, who would very, in fact, in the same year, I think, in the same year as this, he directed the first episode of The Simpsons. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a guess, right? That's a feather in your cap. Yeah, early on. Yeah, I did. You do you know? Was he the person who directed the original video? Because it does look pretty similar. It's got that polygon type uh, cartoon style. Definitely, yeah. I don't know that. I'm going to look up who directed the money for, money for nothing video. Yeah, I meant I meant to do it because I had that same thought revisiting it. Um, you know, it does. Yeah, and 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 again, I think that you know, outside of this movie and in general, uh, you know, when you look at Al's videos, he does try to to emulate that that look and feel of of what he's trying to to parody. Um, but you're right. It, it's strange that it, it takes so long for a song parody to enter the movie. 
And that's that one is the only one that really is inside the movie. He um, that was like the lead single, I want to say. It's the only um, one that fits the kind of mold that people were used to from Al. You know, there are other songs on the soundtrack, but they tend to be like if there's an action scene or a chase scene, there will be quite a detailed parody of the kind of rock songs that an 80s action movie might use at that point. It's not as direct a parody of a single song in this case. Yeah, and and there was an accompanying album that came out, and it was it's labeled the UHF soundtrack and other stuff uh, because it was you know it's partially a soundtrack, but it's also the new Weird Al album, and a lot of those songs didn't make it into the movie. Um, you know, I, just to draw a more con- slightly more contemporary reference, uh, you know, Idlewild. I know you've talked about recently on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. They had an album that came out as the soundtrack. And hardly any of those songs are in the movie. And I think that um, that is kind of the case here, too. And I wonder if uh, things would have been different if a couple more of those songs made it into the movie or made it out as singles. Well, the the soundtrack album has the uh, song that I think first made me aware of who Weird Al Yankovic was, uh, which is Spam, his version Ah, of Stand by R.E.M. And I knew this because I was an absolutely obsessive R.E.M. fan as, as a kid, and I had... Uh, Marcus Gray's book, It Crawled from the South, that massive compendium of absolutely everything R.E.M. Now, Gray is like me English and his like his his account of who Weird Al is is just ri- drips with this kind of baffled disdain that America has this guy who just in his view just covers existing songs and makes them about meat or TV and I think mm-hmm. maybe this was the lingering thing that put me off Al for a few years but um yeah, the, the Money for Nothing parody is, is a good look at how he approaches those songs, where it's not just that rewriting the lyrics of Money for, for Nothing to be about the Beverly Hillbillies is ridiculous. It's the level to which he commits to the bit and the like weirdly obsessive detailing of Beverly Hillbillies lore and backstory that goes into it. And I think that's what elevates his work above you know in in britain and i think this was another reason why maybe weird al didn't catch on here but that kind of reworded song parody was generally the sort of thing that radio djs did if they wanted a quick novelty single and it wasn't you know it produced some horrors let's put it that way um but i think the beverly hillbillies money for nothing mashup is a good insight into how Weird Al approaches this in a much more, both a much more silly and a much more precise way than other people doing the same thing have. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree, and that you know, and that's the kind of thing that once you're exposed to more of his of his music, that you you kind of pick up on. You know, I mean, I'll say you know, Eat It came out when I was maybe eight years old, and. Mm. It was a revelation because that was the kind of thing that my friends and I were doing, you know, at recess, you take a popular song and, you know, anytime the word heart comes in, you put fart in, you know, or something, you know, it's a real basic puerile kind of, you know, immediate reaction. But Al really, you know, digs into and tries to find some sort of a 
a through line and a theme, you know, and even if it's just potatoes or, or something like that, uh, he throws in as many puns and, and jokes as he can um, that, that lets you know that, you know, and, and then again, like I said, like the, the arrangements, the musical aspect of it, you know, he's been working with the same band since the 80s. Um, and they have gotten really good at, at adapting to styles. You know, he's taught himself to rap and to rap in different, you know, cadences and different styles over the years, you know, uh, to keep up with what's going on. So I think that that level of, you know, doing the research and, and having that uh, commitment to what he's doing, I think that that immediately raises ab- above like the folks you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, and I think also part of it is just looking at it in retrospect and thinking, God, you know, 40 years of, of like focusing on this and as you say, staying ahead of trends, it's way in advance of any kind of legacy that anyone else in this vein has. Um, his first mentor was one of the many pillars of American popular culture that I only know from a throwaway joke on The Simpsons. Uh, but his, his first mentor was Dr. Demento, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Demento was, he was a radio DJ who specialized in novelty songs um, and had a syndicated show that was on... I mean, as long as I can remember, and definitely into maybe the 2000s, he was still going. Um, but yeah, he he definitely he got he gave Al his first exposure, um, and really was his his champion um, and got his name out there. I do love the idea of a, a, a DJ who just is a taste maker for novelty hits in the same way that you know Wolfman Jack was for rock and roll, just earnestly curating what's hot and what's not in the novelty single world i think that's that there's a nobility to that as a life's pursuit i think yeah and you'd be surprised at how much is out there i you know i as a long time weird al fan i got into dr demento when i was younger and did my best to listen to him as often as i could and yeah you would always you'd be surprised picking it up again you know into the 2000s if you'd hear the show there were still Lots of new things coming out in that vein. Uh, a lot of them inspired directly by Weird Al. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. 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 Um, so rather than a song parody, it starts off with, uh, I guess, something applying the Weird Al ethos to film, which is this uh, quite elaborate recreation of the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which... I mean, there's a lot going on here. But I like how the 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 ending of this skit where he just sort of lies down in front of the boulder and gets flattened by it, which at the time just a funny way to uh, to end a raid to the Lost Ark parody. Now it feels like he's parody parodying the ending of Prometheus like <laughs> before that was made. But... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, actually, I didn't, didn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the way that it escalates again. You know, it's yeah. it first just kind of, you know, going through and it's it's funny because it's not Harrison Ford doing these things. Um, when he gets to the idol, it's instead of the little head, it's a, it's an Oscar statue. You know, it's a, a little funnier, but then it really kicks off when that, that ball follows him out. You know, he jumps out and gets away from it and it follows him out then rounds the corner and then follows him to Paris and all these other places. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, finally just, uh, what are you going to do? 
Um, I think that's really indicative of Weird Al's sense of humor is that, you know, just keep taking it further and further until it, you know, until you get that laugh. I mean, it's it's no surprise that Weird Al was a huge fan of Zucker, Abraham Zucker. They're one of the few, like, filmmaking teams around in the 80s whose work is comparable to this. But And, of course, he does pop up in several of their films later on in the Naked Gun films. But yep. uh, it's interesting. You describing that makes me realise that his style of parody is subtly very different from Zucker, Abraham Zucker, where something like Airplane it's just a tornado of gags. You know, part of the fun of it is that the first time you watch it, you realise that you are missing about half of the jokes in this movie because they are so relentless. Right. Whereas, as you say, Al's attitude is to start off with something that's quite funny, but then just hammer it and hammer it and hammer it until it becomes really exaggerated. I mean, the, my favourite example of this is there's... There's a series of spoof trailers well into this film, and one of them is for a film called Corn and the Librarian, which in itself is kind of a hacky joke, but he keeps at it until you hear an Arnie lookalike say the phrase Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> uh, which is actually incredibly funny. And th- there's, there's something about the persistence of it that gets somewhere that just making the joke wouldn't get you to. So in that sense, it's almost the opposite of what Zucker Abraham Zucker are doing at this time. Yeah, yeah, kind of like beating you into submission with with the possibilities. Because, yeah, I mean, like you said, sometimes it's going to be the first thing that comes to mind. You know, Conan the Librarian, you know, someone's got an overdue book, he cuts him in half, okay. Um, But, but yeah, it's, it's, you explore what all those different possibilities of what that scenario can be. Um, yeah, that that's that's his approach, I think, in a, in a nutshell. But it's not all parodies. There's a kind of there's a world in this film that I found to be kind of interesting in because George Newman, Al's character, is introduced to us as one of those kind of archetypal 80s comedy sad sacks he works a minimum wage job he has a girlfriend who he can't commit to he spends all this time daydreaming until one day he somehow comes into possession through a a chain of circumstances that even the film isn't that interested in if we're honest he comes in into possession of the kind of cheap tv station that the title refers to it's sort of interesting the world that he's in is like i can imagine if this was developed by someone other than al and his manager there would be a sense of all right we've got weird al he needs to be weird we need to ground him in an ordinary world so we can show him off being weird weird al looks pretty much like normal al in this town yeah 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 he is you know he's 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 kind of the center of the of the chaos you know or the ringleader of the um the little crew of misfits that he builds up and um you know i think that what i was really noticing rewatching this recently i mean i've seen this i saw this in the theater when it came out you know i was i was the one you know um but (laughs) having seen it so many times like it really dawned on me that this is like a classic 80s slobs versus snobs kind of a setup um and in a lot of those cases you know you've got 
you know, the rich and powerful, in this case, the, the rival network affiliated television station and pitted up against the, the everyman. So it was George and uh, the ragtag crew of people he's, he's got to work on his station. Um, and it really, in, in that dynamic between the haves and have nots really uh, gets underlined in a, in a kind of a unique way. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the whole phenomenon of a UHF station um, I don't know how widespread that is, but I mean, I remember back when, um, in the States, at least, you know, all of the, the, the high budgeted, uh, network affiliates, your ABCs and CBSs were all lower on the dial and they had a stronger signal and a, and a better, better frequency. When you got to the more local, locally owned independent stations, the UHF stations, they were further down, they were channel, 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, 62 in this case. Um, and, you know, the signal wasn't as strong. They didn't have the same kind of support from, you know, resources. They did tend to run a lot of, you know, old sitcoms and, um, and, the, and, the, and that locally centered programming. So your news, your, your children's shows, um, the kind of things that he talks about here, that, that divide really was the kind of things that they would show on those channels because they didn't have the, uh, the big bucks to compete with the with the major networks. Yeah, I think that's a part of it that maybe plays a bit stronger in Britain now than it would have at the time, because uh, I'm forgetting which culture secretary it was. I'm forgetting which prime minister it was under, which is an occupational hazard of talking about British politics at the moment. But there was a big drive about sort of five or six years ago that everywhere should have a local television station and this was an absolute disaster you know it, it means like an hour of amateurishly produced local news and weather a night followed by generally seems to be like bought in true crime shows so i was channel hopping through them and i was thinking okay this is called t-side tv and i'm watching a documentary about a serial killer in Alaska. I don't know, not seeing the local connection here. Uh, so it, it is weird that like decades after UHF stations became a standing joke in America, some British politician, maybe he watched this movie actually, maybe that's what did it. Maybe he thought this is the kind of unleashing of creativity that we could have. Yeah, I hate, you know, I, I, I'm sure Weird Al would be glad to, to claim that as a, as a win, you know. Um, it's a legacy, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's a whole sort of, even before you get into the business of him owning stations, a whole town of offbeat characters here, it reminded me, although it's, it's a bit broader, but I don't know, maybe that's just the difference between, like, drawn cartoons and live action film but it did remind me a bit of Gary Larson in the way that it has this kind of alternate small town America of recognizable grotesque types yeah no absolutely you know and you mentioned small town so I, I wanted to ask you uh what city do you think this movie takes place in Oh gosh, have I done this again? Uh, this is this no, is like the no 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 no. I'm, I'm asking like a, a purely like because I'm not sure either. I used to I right. always assumed it was L.A., but watching it, I'm like this. They don't really outline where it's at. Um, it seems yeah. like it's a larger market, I guess, because they have that local network affiliate. 
Um, but, you know, the movie was actually filmed in Oklahoma, um, so, you know, for, you know, budgetary purposes. I think the producer just had a connection there. But but I was I was wondering the whole time, are they going to tell us where this is? Because, you know, I, I just assume it's Los Angeles, but it really doesn't feel like it when you when you really think about it. That's interesting. I have this. Uh, I keep making this mistake on Letterboxd where I will watch anything that is like slowly paced or kind of gentle and assume it must be set in small town America and then one of my American friends will say you realize that's like upstate New York that's Mm. nothing like what you think it is but yeah spiritually it is off the map I think that's what I'm picking up on it's it's a weird place yeah I agree I agree for sure I think I think that the lack of commitment to saying where it was uh will automatically kind of located in that that space of like an other yeah yeah certainly um and there's a very interesting cast around him um i mean we'll talk about the the transatlantic divide he is a transatlantic divide for you to me fran drescher will always be bobby fleckman from this is spinal tap but Mm -hmm. Obviously, in the States, she's more associated with the nanny. Uh, but I really loved seeing her in this. I think Fran Drescher's great. Yeah, I've always had a soft spot for her. I can't can't say I'm a nanny fan, but, you know, uh, I think she's at the the height of her personality right here. Um, you know, mm. she's some of the outfits she has alone are, are, are you know, <laughs> just amazing. Yeah, she's great. This Yeah, the cast is really, really kind of interesting in, in retrospect, for sure. Well, yeah, in retrospect, because he's he's got Michael Richards quite a, a few years, I would say, like about five years, would that be fair, before Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah, right about then. Um, yeah, he, I, he he had been in a few random things. Uh, I Coming into this, I knew him from a very terrible uh, horror comedy parody called Transylvania 65000. Oh, yeah. Um, where he, yeah, it's got Jeff Goldblum, and I think mean, it's the where Jeff Goldblum and, and Gina Davis met. Um, but he plays kind of a similar kind of a uh, go for broke kind of clownish character in that too. And based on that movie and this one, you know, he was one of my guys. And when Seinfeld came out, I was like so happy for him. And you know, and then some years later, uh, things didn't go so well for him. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the last time uh, I, I saw Michael Richards discussed before this was on a message board I go to where people were discussing, you know, what what celebrities have actually been cancelled rather than the normal thing where you get a bit of pushback, you say you've been cancelled and that's actually the beginning of an extremely lucrative second career as the guy who says he doesn't have a career anymore. But you thought, oh, fuck yeah, after that, uh, that open mic thing, Michael Richards just just vanished, didn't he? God. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I was looking that up. I was wondering if he's done, and he, I think he's done a handful of things since then. Um, mm. He was on a, uh, uh, I think he was on Kirstie Alley's sitcom for a while. Um, right. But yeah, he uh, he really kind of kind of fell off, unfortunately. Yeah, it it does it does show you what Richards had at his peak because this is it, it's not directly Kramer-esque role. There's some clear blue water between this and Kramer, but 
you you do think these are both very extreme characters who could go wrong very easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stanley Spadowski is, yeah, he's one of those characters that, you know, I was, as I was watching this, I was making a list of things they would not do today. And I, I wonder, <laughs> you, know, and, and, you know, Michael Richards, first of all, and Stanley Spadowski as a character, you know, it never, uh, it never dawned on me, but, you know, is he, uh, is he, he's obviously a little slow. Um, and, you know, developmentally, yeah. but it's never presented in a way where we're supposed to um, laugh at, you know, if he has a disability, we're not necessarily laughing at him. We're laughing at the absurdity of this guy being put into this role and how much fun he has. And that's what makes him a star. It's not, you know, he becomes a star, not because people like to laugh at him. They're laughing with him. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't he? For all Spadowski is is a ridiculous character, and for all he'd he'd like be terrible at any number of things. Being a TV star is actually something that the film presents him as being unironically good at. Right, 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 and just you know, and and his his kind of obliviousness to the way things are supposed to go is what makes him succeed. Um, and I think that's mm. the case with like a lot of like the misfit characters in this movie um you know you could make the case again from stuff they wouldn't do today that a number of these characters like uh cooney um the karate instructor uh raul uh the guy who uh runs the wild kingdom out of his apartment where he just throws animals out the window uh, <laughs> you know in a, in a way and looking back at it like the you know they're they're kind of racial stereotypes but in in all those cases, we're never, you're not necessarily laughing at those characteristics. We're laughing at the things their characters are doing. Well, Cooney is an interesting one because he's played by Geddy Watanabe, who, you know, who, who has this millstone around his neck in that his breakthrough role, his most famous role, is uh, one of the most notorious. Asian stereotypes in American media, which is a long duk dong from, is this 16 Candles? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, 16 Candles. Yeah. And it's sort of, I mean, I, I would certainly accept that casting an Asian actor as a karate instructor with a really thick accent is like maybe something that people wouldn't do today, but Cooney is not Long Duk Dong. He's a very savvy, very driven, very aggressive kind of guy who, you know, is is makes other people the butt of his jokes. He's not the butt of their jokes. There are stereotypical aspects to him, certainly, but he's not a fall guy like Long Duk Dong was. Yeah, absolutely. And and I and again, I think that's the difference of this movie's version of the slobs versus snobs. Uh, versus something mm-hmm. like uh, Police Academy or Revenge of the Nerds or one of those things where I was going to mention Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, yeah, yeah those movies definitely had a a, a meaner streak to that uh, type of humor, whereas this one like constantly deflates that, in my opinion, anyway. I think the the sli- there is a slightly darker aspect to it, but it comes across in the really silly kind of grand guignol injuries that people have, where it's it's 
kind of at most you could say it's gross it's kind of hard to react too badly to Remo Phillips accidentally slicing his thumb off you know it's uh, apologies to any of our listeners who have recently suffered with losing their thumb in a band <laughs> or accident but it, it feels less culpable than something in those other films that were out at the same time sure yeah i mean and again it's 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 so over the top and it just keeps going and he keeps spurting blood everywhere and then at the very end of the bit he says boy is my face red you know and yeah, and that's classic. I mean, I, I don't know your familiarity with Emo Phillips, but uh, I, I love Emo. He's, he's a local guy uh, from our area. Oh, and yeah, uh, yeah he's, he, I, I just saw Weird Al a few months ago and, and Emo opened up for him. Um, so yeah, they're oh, still friends. Good. Yeah, they're longtime friends. But yeah, his sense of humor is pretty well aligned. And like you said, it can get dark, but uh, never in, in a way that kind of makes you you know feel bad it's it's just you know and uncovering yeah. those darker aspects of of you know the darker side of humor i think the nastiest that george himself gets is when he's depressed because stanley's career is eclipsing his and there's a fabulous moment where he's on stage doing the kids show that he does on this uhf channel <laughs> one of the kids talks to him and he just stops shut up you little weasel yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so over the line it's crazy yeah 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 i mean that, i'd say that's another good uh go-to weird l kind of humor where he just gets like un- outrageously angry and you know that's a that's a trope but like it's something about this guy doing it and his his choice of words, like the absurdity of how angry he gets. It just, yeah, it's, it never, it never fails to make me funny. He pulls that joke out a lot. (laughs) He's like, for, for all as you say, he does use like inappropriate bursts of anger as the subject for a lot of his comedy. The Weird Al persona is just the least toxic nerd imaginable, right? He's just a guy who likes his loud shirts and likes to watch trash TV and he doesn't have any resentment towards anyone who who judges him for that really. Yeah, no, no, he uh, he is who he is, and he's very, very strongly, you know, he calls himself Weird Al. So, you know, you can't, you can't, putting that, if, if weird is a pejorative, you put it in your name, and there's no, you know, you can't really hurt him by, by calling him weird, because he, he's admitting it right up front. Completely, yeah, and, and I think it's, uh, it helps those darker aspects go down pretty easily in a lot of ways um sure yeah i I think as a al neophyte uh watching a whole like 100 minute film is is a bit of a baptism of fire and there were bits where i felt my attention wander a bit but I, i did find myself pretty charmed by this film and i will say that you know we talked about you you mentioned that al's work is a sort of time capsule of the era that it's made in. And I, I did find myself thinking, watching UHF, that George Newman's talk show special about Satanism is less ridiculous than Geraldo's. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the reference. Um, yeah, and then he, at the end, he gets hit in the face with a chair. So, 
<laughs> Pure Grimaldo, yeah. Yeah, in general, yeah. I, I, I think it, there's a lot of references in this where, you know, I'm I, watching it, I'm like, how, again, based on that kind of trapped in amber uh, style and in really speaking to the moment, you know, I don't know how many of these jokes would really uh, not even like not be accepted, but just be understood by, you know, younger audiences now. The whole thing ends with a Gone with the Wind parody and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was, I kind of took it on face value seeing it in the 80s. I can't imagine a kid now watching that and saying, oh, yeah, I, I, I get that, you know, or maybe, maybe I'm just uh, discounting younger generations' uh, understanding of what they were It's one of those things. I, I always think when we're talking about references in humor, it's possible to overthink it. Like the other Geraldo reference in that section is where he has like this very serious investigation into the contents of Al Capone's glove compartment. And that that's funny if you remember Geraldo trying to get into Al Capone's vault, but it's also just funny. Sure, yeah. No, I was going to say just in, you know, uh, one other casting thing I wanted to point out in, in terms of things they would not do today. Um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, it's it's not lost on me as a fan of this movie and the character of George Newman that he's he really is kind of a crappy boyfriend to his uh, to his girlfriend. But what we know about Victoria Jackson now, I think it's probably a good thing that that relationship is probably doomed because uh, yes. she's definitely someone who would not be part of this. Uh, she was on SNL at the time, but yeah, she has since made herself into uh, sort of a, a uh, you know right wing conservative Christian kind of uh, ideologue, and you know her her like Michael Richard, she's kind of fallen off the face of the earth in terms of the pop culture landscape here. Well, yeah, I mean, Victoria, um, sorry, I've already forgotten her surname, Victoria uh, Jackson, yes. Victoria Jackson is someone I actually heard about for the first time when I was reading American blogs around that sort of tea party era. And they would say, I can't believe that the sort of woman who played all the bits characters from Saturday Night Live is going out and doing interviews about how Obama's the Antichrist or whatever. So that, that's quite a way to be introduced to someone's body of work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, Weird Al is, is definitely not that kind of guy. He's definitely really progressive in real life. He's, you know, he's been a vegetarian since shortly after this got made. So I think, I think that was a real hot dog. He put the Twinkie, but a couple of years ago, <laughs> he wouldn't have, you know? Um, yeah. That he doesn't, really, doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs. I think that's where a lot of the humor of this biopic is going to come from because there's no dirt on the guy. He's a yeah genuinely nice person from anybody you speak to. So yeah, I think uh, if this were made today, it wouldn't be Victoria Jackson in that role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Maybe it was the trauma of seeing Emo Phillips get his thumb sliced off that made him realize the cruelty of factory farming. You never know. It very well could have been, yes. Get, yeah. get some of that fake blood in your mouth and oof, you know. <laughs> but yes, uh, no, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I found it in equal parts bewildering and endearing, which is kind of what I was hoping for going into a Weird Al movie. Um and I'm very much looking forward to seeing Weird, which I'm sure will be out uh, by the time this podcast goes out. And 
what do you think? There could be a follow-up podcast in that at some point. Could be a Patreon show in it. Sure, I definitely wouldn't uh, wouldn't argue with it. I'll be watching it this coming weekend. So uh, yeah, I I would be happy to come back on and uh, give you my thoughts. Well. Uh, that about wraps it up for Pop Screen for this week. Uh, like I said, we do have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you can get exclusive monthly episodes of this show that aren't available anywhere else, as well as uh, Rob's reviews of Asian films that don't have a distributor in Britain, uh, my twice-weekly Doctor Who reviews, and more. But for now, uh, that's been a lot from us. I've been Graham. And I've been Jeff. And we'll see you next week.